Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. Uh, my name is Dan Martin and I am a special effects artist and voice in your ear and I am joined as ever by my lovely co-host Sam Ashurst and I directed the most original film of 2018, Frankenstein's Creature and I also write about film for a bunch of different places and occasionally TV and I write other things. The Good. End, the end. The end. <laughs> and I am. You see, headshot attached. And I am here to talk about Frankenhooker, which was Dan's choice. Dan, why did you choose Frankenhooker? Well, we sort of talked about doing a Han and Lotta for a while on the podcast. And I wanted to do brain damage. I think we're still going to do brain damage. Okay, good. I don't think. And we'll probably do Basket Case as well. I, Is that Basket Case and Arrow? I think it's only Region 1. Oh, well, we can still do it. Great. We'll see. We'll so, see if we're allowed. If we're allowed to also So why go case. for Frankenhooker first? Um, I don't know why to go for Frankenhooker first. It, it just felt like it was the one I wanted to watch again. <laughs> Great. And how did you feel? Um, I don't know. It's really interesting. I, it was always... It, it definitely stands out from Hannah Loss's other stuff. And whether that's because he, like, as he says, it's his first um, union picture, they had a bit more money, or, or as he talks at length about in various extra features on the disc, mm. something I didn't know about, which was that he fucking hated making it. Yeah, he had a nightmare. <laughs> which is interesting, because he seems quite fond of it looking back at it. Mm. But I think it was just, yeah, it, it's... it's. I don't know. I don't know why I chose it. <laughs> I don't know why I chose it, but I um I enjoyed revisiting it. It Good. is it, it's got some pretty crazy stuff in it. I think it's because he he did it back to back with Basket Case Two, he which did. I do not like particularly. No, better than Basket Case Three. <laughs> yes. Um, so in Basket Case Two, he really went off the rails with the creature effects, mm-hmm. and it, but it didn't didn't gel for me. Mm-hmm. It didn't work with Franklin Hooker. I don't know why I've got a soft spot for it. It's deeply problematic. Yeah, but it's a very, very weird film, isn't it? Is it is very weird. And it's it's because he's... I think he's more obviously going for comedy than Definitely. his previous Definitely. films. Definitely. And although both Basket Case and, to a greater extent, Brain Damage have comedic elements in them, this they are not comedies with comic elements, I'd say. Whereas this is a comedy. Or at least it's meant to be comedy. Yeah, I mean, Brain Damage is one of... I mean, I say this so often on the podcast, but I love Brain Damage so much. One of my favourites ever, ever, ever. Whereas I think the difference between that and Frankenhooker is Frankenhooker was literally made up on the spot. Um, Henning Lotter was asked to pitch a movie um, to an investor um, who was going to give him access to more money than he's ever had before. Yeah. Hence, the same investor basically funded Frankenhooker and Basket Case 2. I think there was like a three-week gap between filming both of them. Yeah. But but Frankenhooker was literally... Uh, Henning Lotter pitched it in the moment, in the room, making it up as he went along, um, to the extent that he forgot what he'd pitched and he had to ask someone else who was in the room, what should I say again so I can write it down after I've left? <laughs> um, so, yeah, he, and uh, he, he, it's a lovely sort of interview on the disc and he sort of describes turning to this friend and going, he does what? <laughs> because he can't believe what he himself has pitched and it very much feels like that. It's kind of all over the place um, tonally and, you know, you can very much feel... And actually, some of my favourite moments are the bits where it feels like they're making it up on, on the spot. Yeah. I think James Lawrence, he's at his best when you can feel that he's improvising. Um, yeah. It's a cool... Like, I really like his performance. A lot of people kind of criticise it, especially kind of in the first half of the movie. <laughs> but he's got an energy and, and a delivery that's very unique. I, I, I watched it with um, my housemate, Yonatli, and I said to him that, you know, I would watch an entire film of him in his lab talking to himself. Um, and to his uh, various small creations at the beginning. Yes, yeah, exactly. I mean, even the way this film opens, it kind of, it, it feels like you're, it opens in the middle of something rather than at the start of a film. 
Um, but that's great. Yeah, like, yeah. That's, I'm, that's, I'm not criticizing yeah, it. I'm not criticizing it. Merit, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole thing it does feel a bit like an improv class gone, like cranked up. A hundred percent. There's that a lot of and then perfectly. what feelings. Exactly. To it. Um, yeah. And yeah, sometimes it doesn't land, and there are some problems with it. Yeah. Uh, what's interesting about so it's obviously very easy to criticise for its depiction of sex workers and for its depict like you know its relationship with women in general and it does get like slammed for a lot of that. I'm not going to defend it per se, but it's interesting to hear how the people that made it, um, specifically Helen Otter, feel like they were making something that went in the exact opposite direction. Like uh, th- there's there's loads of instances. An example I will give, which is not about women but it's about drugs is Hannah Lotta talking about um the stuff that had to be cut out of it for for like a, a tv release and uh and there's a he's saying oh well, these some things were okay and some things weren't and one of the things they had to cut was uh, a shot where you actually see someone smoking crack it's when the uh the leads gets the idea of making the super crack in the film and there's a shot of a like a young, buff, healthy guy like putting a pipe up to his mouth and, and lighting a rock. And then the camera pans left and you see like a sort of super emaciated, ill guy smoking crack. And they had to take it out. And the MPA didn't want them having it in because it sh- was actually showing people smoking crack and sure. that was a no-no. But what Hen and Lotter had wanted to do was to show, look, this is the progression. Crack is a terrible of course, thing. Of course. It's yeah, here's a healthy guy, and then here's a guy, this is what he could end up as because it's a terrible drug. And so he felt like he was doing something morally right. But obviously that it, it, he fell foul of the senses. Um, yeah, I I mean yeah, I mean the whole thing is kind of fascinating. If you want something that really sort of captures that period of time uh in new york where it was basically like a waking hell (laughs) um where crack had first sort of come into the city and you know there were uh, prostitutes openly everywhere you know you, you drive down uh, take a wrong turn and you're faced with you know many 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 prostitutes um and actually i've got a feeling that Henning lotter filmed a lot of those people and just put it in his film similar to nightmares where well, but yeah like a lot of these films at this time you look at um like a lot of traumas output as well mm. like just people ended up in the background of films yeah yeah and and actually on that note um very kind of different but when Frankenhooker is walking around saying one a date. Mm-hmm. She approaches a man who's wearing a, a 1989 Batman t-shirt. Yeah, the um, the, the lookalike. And yeah, exactly. And <laughs> and you're just watching it, thinking, how the fuck did they get away with that? Like because people didn't watch that stuff. Like yeah, that. And we didn't have the internet to point stuff out to. And, and also, uh, people didn't. Uh, people definitely didn't watch it because it was released um, unrated. And so, um, you know, it didn't show in very many places. So yeah. it kind of bombed a little bit. I mean, it's 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 a very yeah. It's it's a weird film. There are definitely things to like about it. It's it's another film, much like the burning, that doesn't really have an ending for me. Like the ending feels very <laughs> tacked on and very like you know, a little bit like cake and eat it too in that all this objectification was actually a critique <laughs> <laughs> but this is so that's kind of what i was talking about earlier with the drugs with the crack pipe pan yeah like whatever that like whatever they achieved or failed to achieve their intentions were something else and i think that it's naivety and being part of a broken system that meant that they failed right. with the critique and the social commentary yeah rather than like innate problems like when you hear when you see um Hennenlotter talking about like what was he going to call it and he's like what oh frankenhor no that's not that's too aggressive frankenslut and it's like oh for fuck's sake <laughs> but again this was in this like you know, pitch meeting. Yeah, well, and the tagline was "It's a tale of sluts and bolts." Yes, like yeah. it's yeah, it's certainly yeah, and problematic. Uh, it is, but there's it, it's this very weird mix of um, I don't know, like it's incredibly sleazy. Obviously, it's incredibly seedy, but 
in there somewhere there is kind of a weird sweetness like oh yeah people really criticize um patty mullen aka you know yeah, yeah, yeah. frankenhooker herself um people say that she's a terrible actress no she's great in it. It, i think so too like and you know i I saw this many, many years ago when I was, you know, probably too young to watch it, but um, I thought she was fucking brilliant. Yeah, she's incredible. And, like, the physical comedy and the delivery and, you know... Well, and and the, she's great at the start. She's very funny. It's almost like um, John Waters, like... Yeah, it does have a very John Waters air, actually. And and I think that, like, there are things that I hadn't realised about it that are that show that people were caring about it. So for something that was made up on the spot, the fact that she only says things yes. that had previously been spoken by the sex workers that she is now made up of the pieces of yeah. is a, is such a great touch. Yeah. Like that's absolutely fantastic and that shows some real like some real thoughtfulness in the actual storytelling uh, and, and which on the surface you can't see at all. <laughs> completely. And 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 also um in kind of one of the the end scenes where she's kind of gone back into the the bar and um you know, Zorro comes to find her, like in that kind of back room. Um, there's a bit where he kind of walks into the room, and the way it's kind of lit from behind, it, it reminds me of Fassbinder. Like, there's yeah. one shot which is beautiful, like genuinely beautiful. <laughs> I mean, admittedly, it's a beautiful shot of a terrible actor. Um, yes, he's bad. Zorro's not the best. Um, but there are little moments in there where, you know, you can tell that. It's being made by an artist, admittedly an outsider artist, but Henninlotta, you know, very, very, very unique filmmaker Absolutely. who has a very, very strong voice. So how do you feel the aesthetic of this compares, like the cinematic aesthetic of this compares to something like Brain Damage or Basket Case, given that he was at war with the cinematographer. Because there are some really beautiful shots in there, and I always wonder, are they shots he had to fight for, or are they or are they battles he lost? Exactly, yeah. I, I have to say, I do feel that, like, of all of his films, and, you know, I, like you, I'm not a fan of Basket Case 2, or definitely not Basket Case 3. It, this one does feel very TV movie to me. Like, even it's there in the editing as well, which obviously the yeah. cinematographer had nothing to do with. But all of those kind of fades to black where you it's almost like there should be a commercial break or something. Yeah, you know it feels I mean? like they didn't know how to come, come out of it. Totally. Yeah. And I, I don't know if that was, you know, because Henning Lotter didn't get the shots he wanted or whether it was, you know, just not very good editing. Well, those, I think those fades imply a sort of slightly more episodic script, which is just, a, which, which is, is exactly then, what it is. It's exactly, the like, pile yeah, yeah. of ideas threaded together. Yeah. With no real thought as to how you get from one to the other. <laughs> yeah. I, it's a, it's a weird one. I don't it know is how to a feel really about it, one. really. Like, I've got such a soft spot for Hen and Lotter and, you know. It's I, a good, it's quite a good party film, I think. I think so. Though, you know, one of the many times I've watched this, I, I showed it to uh, my friend Emma and uh, she was not a fan at all. And I suddenly, it was one of those moments where, you know, as an exploitation fan, as a fan of psychotronic cinema, every now and then you fuck up and you show someone a film and you... The context suddenly, is just completely wrong. Yeah, and you, yeah. S you suddenly see it through their eyes and you're like, oh shit, what have I done? Yeah. Because, you know, it is very grimy, it's very... Yeah, there, there are some really sort of... Yeah, for, for someone who's not immersed in that world... Well, that's it, and particularly to kind of have it sprung on them as well... I it's, mean, it, it, it was, to, to be fair to myself, what else did we watch that? I think we watched Death Spa nice. and uh, Potentially Deadly Prey. So it was part of a, you know, VHS like, yeah, shit show. Cheesy shit show, <laughs> horror, yeah. yeah. Um, fun, bad movies, basically. But whereas, you know, she loved um, Deadly Prey. I think it was Death Spa. That's both fun. Yeah, and and whereas she really enjoyed those films, Frankenhooker just took it a little bit. Cause, was because it, the was reason it is, did you watch it? The, it was, was third, it and and, and yeah. the the reason is, I think Frankenhooker has this weird mixture of it's it's kind of hyper real, but also 
it's kind of weirdly naturalistic in places, if that makes sense. Yeah. It, it's it's almost like they didn't cast actors for certain... Well, they didn't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they did and they didn't. But yeah, yeah. so I, I think that gives it a very different energy to something that's just straight out trash. Yeah. There is a level where you feel like someone... In, I'm not going to name names, but you feel like someone in that production knew that world very well. Well, okay, so that takes us on to a conversation I desperately wanted to have with you about this. In fact, I excitedly phoned Sam oh, God, the other yeah. day. Yes, okay. Uh, yeah. So a little while ago, Sam and I watched, what's it called, Slayer? No, not Slayer. No, not Slayer. Um, Satan's Blade. Satan's Blade, thank you, Satan's Blade. Sam and I watched Satan's Blade, and then we worked our way through the, uh, the extra features. So basically, we, we actually, this, this is kind of interesting, because the way we watched that film was we got back from the um, summer slasher all-nighter, the one that Arrow put on at the Prince Charles which Cinema. Which started with us introducing The Burning, which is where we sort of introduced the idea of the... The podcast. The podcast. But Dan and I, for some reason, decided we hadn't had enough of um, slasher films. So yeah. we put on Satan's Blade, um, which is quite bad. It's pretty bad. Um, um, it's got some... It's, it's, it's not a good movie to watch when you haven't had any sleep. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's got, it's got a lot of fun, what the fuck were they thinking moments. Totally. And I think if you're in a rowdy room of people and you're probably like two films in and four or five beers in, then it's, it's going to be a lot of fun. So basically what I'm saying is we were slightly delirious when we watched yeah. it. Now, Dan, tell us. So we watched all the extras on Satan's Blade as well, uh, because that's the kind of fools we are <laughs> and uh and fools or geniuses yeah i mean you know, it's, it's the a, best it's extras i've ever line. seen it's well I, I think there's contender now but well anyway I, I don't know for sure and i don't have an official line on this from arrow but what i think happened was the director of um satan's there's blade. two things that could have happened either the director of satan's blade had already made this extra to package together with his film whenever anyone finally picked it up for distribution. Or, I think, Arrow contacted him and said, would you be interested in doing an interview? We've got people in the States that normally take care of this kind of stuff. He said, oh, no, you know, I know people. I can do it. It's fine. And they said, cool, if you could just do an inter- get someone to interview you, talk about your memories of the film, whatever, and send us the footage, we'll put it on the disc, and that'd be amazing. He said, yeah, that'd be good. And then he got, like, I don't know, someone who didn't understand the difference between frantically zooming in and out and not frantically zooming in and out. I mean, it's to, just Like, amazing. he just pushed all his garbage in his house to one corner of the room. Which is still in frame. Which is occasionally still in frame because of the zooming. <laughs> and then on what is probably a VHSC camera, sat opposite the most disinterested-looking lady. <laughs> uh, and sort of talked us through some memorabilia and, and props and things that he had left over from the film and his memories of doing it, all of which he would sort of, like, move around so that you could get nice, sumptuous close-ups at getting all the detail in. Except, again, he hadn't sort of discussed or rehearsed any of this, so it's constantly out of focus, and all you can see are the fingerprints on the table and, like, Or, or by the time it's actually zoomed in, he's moved it out of yeah, shot. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. It's, it's a reason to buy the dish. It really is. It's a... It's a car crash in exactly the same way that the film is a car crash. And it's, yes. it's, there's a sort of beautiful, resonant poetry in how appallingly made I that have interview said it is. I to myself. Um, so that has become something of a benchmark for Sam and I, mm-hmm. uh, Sam and me, with, uh, with cringe extras until, <laughs> or at least for me, until the Frankenhooker disc. Now, the Frankenhooker disc is a, is a, it's a relatively early era disc. It's it got is, the yeah. old It's got the old logo on the front. The old music. music. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it doesn't have the, like, sleek, modern menu formatting either. It's got the sort of slightly more, uh, like, DVD-style menu. Yeah. Which I, as I always do, scoured for Easter eggs. I didn't find any. Um, <laughs> but it does have loads of extras. Really great And they're actually really disc. good as well. It's a yeah. fantastic disc. Um a huge number of the extras centre around Gabe Bartalos, who uh, was the special effects supervisor on it and had previously done brain damage for Frank uh, Lotter. And uh, I, I, I feel like he was potentially a tiny bit overstretched um, on this and Basket Case too. Oh, absolutely. There's, it's it's not it's, well, but he also like we were talking last time about Savini on Prowler and Savini on Burning. And I was saying how I thought that uh, Savini 
the reason the, the Prowler worked so well is it was like he, Savini knew his limits yeah, and he set his sights realistically and was able to deliver on everything. Mm. Gabe does some genuinely good stuff, some genuinely very good stuff for, for um, Frankenhooker, but then there's some stuff where it's obvious he just bit off more than he could chew, whether it was because of time or budget or whatever. The life costs for the exploding sex workers, and he comments on this on the extras, were ridiculously elaborate and ridiculously like com- complicated. He de- he deliberately chose difficult. But problems. they they don't look good. No, the positives don't look good. Yeah, <laughs> the live casts are pretty good. Right, and it's there's the thing is, and this is I a, don't know. There's a sequence on the one of the extras where it's the original, like it's the actors posing next to the. But that's still next to the finished piece. That's not the live cast. That's right. The oh right. Yeah. Yeah. There's, so and this is a to get of like, course yeah, yeah annoyingly technical. Not very. When I'm teaching, I talk about the fact that you can be, you can get fucked over by every different stage of a make. So from the life cast to the positive of the life cast to the tidy up to the isolation mold to the sculpt to the mold to the cast to the application to the paint. In every single one of those, you can make a terrible error that no matter how good all of the rest of the work is, will make it look like hot garbage when it gets on camera. Yeah, yeah. And there are loads of things that are out of your control as well. So um, I, I do think that he did some really good stuff. And he's obviously done some very nice work throughout his career. I mean, brain damage, like, I can't fault brain damage. I love brain damage. There are, there are still problems in brain damage as well. Nothing compared to Frankenhooker, though. No. Well, okay, so the thing is, I didn't realise until watching all the extras... And you've got a puppet as a main extras, character yeah, as well. And, and, and a slightly shonky but very endearing and, and effective puppet. Yeah. Um, I didn't realise... And, and you compare Alma to, let's just say, the brain with the eye in it. The brain with the eye in it is... Well, so the big problem with the brain with the eye in it is that the eye is terrible. Yes. It's really, like, solid and awful. Yeah. And then at the end, when all the, like, all the mutant creatures, which is like a sort of flash-forward to Basket Case mm-hmm. 2, mm-hmm. come out of the cooler... Some of them are really nice sculpts. They're better, yeah. But they yeah. don't move very well. No. And the eyes in the twisted arms with the head, they're still awful as well. Yeah. And there's a there's a um, and both the eyes are kind of moving independently. And I can see, the thing is, I can see the logic there. I can see him going, oh, and then it'll be really cool if they move yeah, independently. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, but it looks like you can't control them. It, it, to the to an audience member, it looks like an error. Yes. It looks like a mistake. So yeah, I, he's obviously a, a, a talented effects artist. He has also directed some films himself. He directed a horror movie called Skinned Deep. Yes. Uh, with that like razor-jawed Surgeon General. I have s- I've character. seen it. It's, yes. It's, uh, it's not, not, <laughs> not great. No, not, uh, not going to be picked up. Uh, no. By it's got Warwick Davis in it as well. But he directed something else as well, didn't he? Which is? He directed the extra feature that we're talking about right now, which I... I phoned Sam during the extra feature playing because I was so emphatic that we had to talk about it. And it was only a few minutes later that I saw that it was directed by Gabe, uh, Gabriel Bartalos. And the fact that he left this in is astonishing. Yes. So basically, do we even describe it or do we just let people go and discover it for themselves? I, I feel like, yes, I feel like you should give a time code at what they're looking out for. Five, five minutes no, it's four minutes, 50 seconds. And then and seven, it, and then it pays off, doesn't it, around the seven minute mark, seven minute 30, something like that. Oh my God, you just got to watch the whole thing. Basically, I'm not going to give you a time code, just watch the, the Gabe Botalos, um, not the tour of his studio, which is really good and definitely watch that as well, but the sort of the memories of Frankenhooker, the remembering Frankenhooker, which is actually very specifically called A Stitch in Time, The Makeup Effects of Frankenhooker. It has some genuinely interesting stuff in it, but there's a... He's, he's obviously been asked to, direct, to make this making of, uh, which I think was for, was it for Shout Factory back then? And then it's been picked up by Arrow for this disc, I think. Anyway, he's, he's gone out and he's done this thing. He's obviously just carried the camera around with him because there's a bit in a nightclub where he's just talking to the camera over a very loud background. But there's a bit at the beginning, or like not like near the beginning, where you're like, why the fuck have you gone there and why do they know you and what's going on he's introduced a conceit he's introduced a conceit which he thinks is and and to to be you know very generous to him um i can kind of see the logic yeah yeah, that's fair you can see why he came to that decision what you can't see is why he then did it is why he then did it and why in the edit he kept it in and why after he'd emailed it or, or, or sent the tapes, you know, the, the files off to be mastered, he didn't then set up a huge petition to have it recanted. <laughs> anyway, that then later pays off and gives 
birth to the the most awkward 32 seconds of screen time I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. It is an absolute beauty. It is indeed. <laughs> um, right, shall we go on to recommendations based on this film? Let's do that. Dan, what have you got? Um, so my first one uh, was going to be Deadly Spawn. It's still going to be Deadly Spawn. Hang uh, on. Deadly Spawn? Oh, no. Yes. No. Yes. Deadly Spawn. It was going to be Street Trash. It was it? going to be Street Trash. No, no, sorry. It was going to be Street Trash. We talked about the fact that we had uh, crossovers. I was like, fuck it, Deadly Spawn. That's a great match. And then you mentioned Deadly Spawn earlier. So that's why I said it like it was going to be Deadly Spawn. Uh, okay. But you've already mentioned it in the episode. But yeah, that's it. It's Deadly Spawn. Uh, Deadly Spawn's a great fun bananas monster movie with lots and lots of huge puppets in it. It doesn't always work. <laughs> Yes. That's, is that a generous word yeah, describing it? It probably works more than Frankenhooker. I mean, I guess... Effects-wise. Effects-wise, yeah. I mean, it's always harder to reproduce something that people are familiar with, like the human face. Yes. Uh, and not looking like a gurning window mannequin. When you've got a crazy three-headed sort of semi-plant alien with teeth, you can kind of do what you want because as long as it feels like it has a logic to it, the audience are going to be much more forgiving. Mm. But yeah, it's another it's another great fun, slightly poor movie. Yeah, it's really worth watching. And, and obviously, Sam has already chosen to uh, triple billet with Frankenhooker in the past, and it went down better than Frankenhooker. Oh no! Okay, I, I wondered where that came from. No, I Deadly Prey. Was... Oh, Deadly Prey. Yes. Oh, okay. Yes, right. that makes sense. But yeah, Deadly Spawn's good too. Yeah, sorry, I, I completely conflated the yeah, two. Yeah, I'm slightly obsessed with Deadly Prey. Um, that is the um, where uh, a young man is 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 hunted it's it's one of the the subgenre of the the human hunted oh yeah, yeah yeah the deadliest game yeah that that kind of yeah. thing um it's a pm entertainment rip off of that but anyway we're not we're not here to talk about deadly prey um and actually you recommending um deadly spawn does make me think that potentially I should have put Slither from 2006 into well, my recommendations for Frankenhooker Hook, because it's very, very Henning Lotter and. Yeah. Yeah, uh, in terms of the creatures and, and the effects and that kind of thing. But no, I am going to recommend a film from 1990, same year as Frankenhooker, called Streets. Um, it's uh, ostensibly a drama about runaways living in Venice and basically a, a kind of a, a male lead um, who's a runaway meets uh, a teenage prostitute played by Christina Applegate um, and their kind of relationship is really sort of interesting, quite sweet and so it, it kind of would have worked as a film even if it was just a drama about these two characters um, but then they also add in this crazy, like tonally it's so varied because you've got this kind of slightly sweet drama going on and then you've also got the addition of a psycho cop character very 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 terminator 2 um who is basically um he's a serial killer who kills prostitutes and he sort of encounters these runaways and kind of becomes obsessed with them and it's kind of this terminator style pursuit of these characters so it's a really weird exploitation mix um but how does it come across tonally what's the blend is it um tony it weirdly it kind of works because um you do very much care for these characters and then they kind of bring in this like terminator style like terminator 2 style la cop um and you're really invested and so it's in those sequences it's very violent and slightly weird but um it, it merges very well so yeah it's similar to frankenhooker in the same year about prostitutes weird tone but i would say it's it's even though it's lesser known than Frankenhooker, it's more successful than Frankenhooker in terms of what it sets out to do and what it I delivers. see what you mean, yeah. Rather than find commercially successful, it's more... Yeah, it achieves its goals. Artistically yeah, successful, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. No, I'm worth checking out. I'm not, not, I don't know it. What have you got next? Uh, I was When we were talking and we were realising that we had so many crossovers last time and this time, because obviously it's another back-to-back record, I'm surprised this didn't turn up in your list. But then there are a couple I, th- I, was, I thought you'd go for, and I... I tried to avoid them, but I couldn't not have this one. Uh, it's Doom Asylum. 
Oh. Seen Doom Asylum? No. Doom Asylum's uh, a gem. I hadn't seen Doom Asylum either until a few days ago. Uh, and I gave it a watch off the back of this, uh, off the back of Frank and Hooker. I've had a, an American disc of it kicking about for a while. I don't know if it's available over in the UK. Oh my God, it's an arrow. It's perfect for arrow. Oh, really? Yeah. It's unbelievably good in that it is unbelievably bad. <laughs> Wonderful. Every decision in it was put to a, a, a vote and the idiots won every time. <laughs> <laughs> um, it stars Patty Mullen. Uh, it was the only other film she'd done before playing Frank yes, in it, before yes. playing the uh, the the. the I'm very sad that she Frank didn't do much, and and you know, I wonder if the reaction is part of it. But uh, there's an interview just with her on the disc. Yeah, she's and lovely. Isn't she's it? lovely, it's really good, and yeah. like her, I love her voice, like I love her accent, and um, she says, you know, she she'd still like to do a sequel to Frank and Hooker. Frank, well, she say Frank and Hooker goes to Mars. Yeah. Frank and Hooker goes surfing. Yeah, the two titles she offers. And I'm like, yep, I'll... I'm in for both of those. Yeah, hundred yep, percent. So sign me up. If I do go on to have a directorial career past Frankenstein's Creature, I think I might try and make a, a sequel to Frank and Hooker um, with with uh, Patty Mullen. I would imagine the rights are inexpensive. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna try. I'll give Frank a call. I'm sure Arrow have contacts for him. Right. Okay. This is gonna happen. There you go. But anyway, I've interrupted you. No, it's fine. Um, so. Basically, when you look up Doom Asylum, there are two things you are aware of very quickly. Uh, well, three things, I guess, that you're aware of very quickly. The first is that it starred both the Playmates of the Year and the Penthouse Pet of the Year. Um, the second thing is that uh, it has a slightly peculiar makeup emblazoned all over the cover. Uh, and the third thing that they put on every single poster, every single cover, every single piece of literature is that it was shot in a real abandoned asylum, which <laughs> you, uh, which basically the tagline is, we shot this in an asylum, guys. <laughs> guys, it's a real asylum. <laughs> it is... I, I cannot begin to explain how amazing it is. It's meant to be a comedy, like Frankenhooker. All of the jokes are baffling. Like, none of them land, but everything else is hilarious. <laughs> it starts with uh, a couple canoodling in a car, going at speed. They're talking about how much in love they are, uh, how they're going to go away somewhere together. Uh, and the woman says, and we'll put that brat of mine in a boarding school. And then they have a fatal crash except like the the woman is killed the guy seems relatively unharmed and is very distraught uh, especially because her hand has been torn off in the car um, which he sort of picks up and looks at and is generally a bit upset about and her like ornate hand mirror that she was for some reason using to look at herself in the in the passenger seat of the car um, is there with them as well and then cut to him in the morgue with no face like we don't really like Again, it's another you don't see the car crash kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought it was a fake out. The way Amazing. It was, shot. it was not a fake out. Just cuts to him like crawling along the grass to her corpse. Um, and then he becomes uh, obsessed with, like he basically goes and lives in an asylum and becomes a murderer. And these, uh, a group of kids, including the daughter who was going to be shipped off to the boarding school, end up going and partying there. And they run into a, a, a like a sort of, girl power punk group who they sort of go up against so that's the perceived conflict while they're actually being picked off secretly by this uh, deranged uh, man there's an amazing like sort of Dr Butcher MD moment uh, between those two bits of the story where the body starts to come back comes back to life and kills one of the doctors and the marketing team obviously didn't watch the whole film and they thought that it was one of the doctors that was killing everyone so the synopsis always says it's a doctor coming back and killing people in his asylum. It's not the Doctor. <laughs> it's, it's this other guy. But because you didn't see him die, it doesn't make any sense that he would be there. It's it's an absolute beauty. That sounds like, great. They've, they've, uh, they've very carefully constructed all of the characters. They've given them all a thing. Mm -hmm. So they've got unique voices, which mm -hmm. is one of the first tricks of writing dialogue. Um, <laughs> and the jock character's thing is that he is absolutely incapable of committing to anything. But it means that every single line he delivered delivers is then immediately followed by another line where he doubts himself. Wow. So every time he has to interact with anyone, he'll be like, yeah, we could go over there. I mean, or not, maybe we shouldn't. Everything is structured that way. It, it sounds is really fun. baffling. It's great fun. Yeah, it sounds very fun. Um, one more thing that I should mention about Streets, actually, before I move on to my next recommendation, is that it is directed by a woman, Kat Shea. So if you are out there and you have set yourself a target to watch a certain amount of uh, films directed by women this year, 
then streets should be one of them. Right, my next recommendation, uh, based on Frankenhooker, is Street Trash from 1987, um, uh, which is about um, a, a toxic drink uh, which uh, is sold to a, a, a low price to a bunch of homeless people. Uh, essentially, and it features our lead from Frankenhooker, James Lawrence, um, as kind of a doorman, um, but that's not the reason I'm recommending this. The reason I'm recommending this is because the special effects are insane and beautiful <laughs> and gross and glorious and neon and weird, and I first saw this film when I was... Uh, I think six years old, uh, which obviously was an inappropriate time to see it, but it stayed with me. And yeah. and, ba- and back then, like it wasn't like I could Google what it was, and I just always remembered this this film in which this guy drank this drink and then melted in the toilet. And I was like, is that a film? Did I dream that? Did that happen? The face in the toilet is a great moment. Yeah, it's just um, like uber trash, gross, grimy. Uh, it's got a sequence in which. <laughs> People play catch with something they shouldn't play catch with, probably. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's it's on Blu-ray. Um, 88 Films have put it out. I haven't actually watched it yet. I do own it, but um, I am I'm waiting for the right time to revisit that on Blu-ray. I'm a little bit worried about how yeah, it's going to hold up hold on up. blue. Um, I only know it from VHS, but um, yeah, if if you like Frankenhooker and want to double bill it with something, then. I can't think of many better things than Street Trash from 1987. Nice. I, as, uh, as we acknowledged earlier, I was yes. Street Trash was going to be one of my recommendations. Yeah. The thing I wanted to mention about it is Jim Murrow, the director's career path, because the thing that stands Street Trash out from all the other sort of like grimy exploitation films of its era is that it's full of Steadicam. It's yes. absolutely full of beautiful steady cam, and the reason is that Jim Murrow was a steady cam operator, yeah. and his career he ended up being one of the biggest steady cam operators in Hollywood. Like he did steady cam on The Abyss, he did steady cam on Titanic, yes. like uh, the X Men films. Like he's yeah, he's a huge, like hugely successful camera operator. But he also made this film, and it's really interesting to see it have all these really beautiful fluid camera moves. Amongst the go- literal garbage piles. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for Frankenhooker off the back of that because obviously Frankenhooker is quite static. No, and... no, I, I, I recommend it because of its connection to Frankenhooker. Oh, I'd say it, the thing that it. makes it interesting. Right, got it, got it. Or at least it. one of the things that makes it interesting, aside from all the Tennessee Viper inspired meltings. Yes. Uh, Tenafly Viper. Tenafly, yeah, uh, yeah. Inspired meltings is uh, is the steady cam. Like it's, it's, it's unlike it's, anything else in that. In it's incredibly dynamic. Right, let's move on to films we've watched in the past couple of weeks, Dan. Yes. Do you have a recommendation uh, for us? I do. Like last week, we're pretty Asian, uh, although at least it's two different countries <laughs> this time. The, uh, the first is a film called Accident, uh, directed by Soi Chiang. Uh, I can't remember the year. I think it's like 2005, maybe. And it's a it's a thriller about a team of assassins who create scenarios in which it looks like the death is an accident. Uh, the reason I revisited this was I was having a chat to a friend of mine about the dark web. <laughs> right. Uh, and he was saying, uh, like, it's very easy to stumble into areas of the dark web that you don't necessarily want to be in. And he's seen adverts for contract killers. And he said that uh, he, he he mentioned like prices that were advertised on the dark web for this, and it's more expensive to have someone killed. Apparently, I mean, I I kind of feel like there's not a lot of customer service or, or rights protection. You're probably going to get ripped off. I don't think I don't think these people are going to go out and kill someone for you. I think they're just going to take your Bitcoin. But <laughs> <laughs> who are you going to fucking complain to? Yeah. But the point is, it's more expensive to have it look like an accident. But that doesn't make any sense because surely it's in the be- it's to the benefit of the person who's going out and doing your murder for you to make it look like an accident because they're still implicit they're still implicated they're still responsible for it. They'll get in trouble. Yeah, yeah. they're going to get in trouble. They're not just going to be like, no, he said to, he gave me gave me money. Oh, all right, off you go. Yeah, exactly. Um, but anyway, so and then I was uh, I was talking to Jen, my wife, about it, and I was talking about accident, and I wanted to revisit it. So. Um, it's about an assassination group who specialise in like super contrived created accidents to kill people. 
and then one of their group dies in an accident and they start to think that maybe someone is is doing the same thing to them there are tells where they're like well that's too convenient why was that there why, why did that happen uh, and it's a really fun um sort of breakdown of trust thriller like you know when everything starts to maybe mean something and everyone's out like you know you never know who's out to get you who everyone could be the baddie it sounds uh, amazing i like those films yeah it's really worth really worth watching excellent well um i used to think that 1963 was my favorite year for film nice. um films like eight and a half zatoichi three the leopard youth of the beast the servant like there's there's so many great films released in in, in in 1963 yeah. however after last time uh watching death warrior from 1984 yeah um more recently i watched another film from 1984 called blast fighter oh wow you know blast fighter before <laughs> no. oh what a treat and um you know i feel like it's it's time for me to quit the podcast because I'll never see a film better than Death Warrior or Blast Fighter. Um, I'm not going to quit the podcast. But Blast Fighter, directed by Lamberto Bava in his uh, alternate name of John Old Jr. That's John, it. Yeah, John Old Jr. Yeah, which is one of my favourite um, <laughs> uh, we, We've talked about another one that he directed under that title as well. Do I don't think we did talk about it, but um, this is just one that we talked yeah, amongst we've, ourselves we've about that about we watched it. together. Was that Midnight Killer? Might have been Midnight Oh, that's a beautiful... Yeah. yeah. That's that's one that we... I've, I've pushed to Arrow after we watched that together, but you really have to see it with the German subtitles. Correct. Like the English language subtitles from the German disc. Because that beautiful filter through the German language to English from Italian is that really makes it special. It's so much fun. But um, yeah, so Blast Fighter is about a former cop uh, who was kind of sort of framed, but not really because he actually did do. <laughs> <laughs> but um, basically, he took quite extreme revenge on on someone who who did something bad and was sent to prison for it. He comes out of prison. And uh, there's still one person left that he needs to take revenge against. Um, and his his old mate gives him a kind of futuristic shotgun, uh, which <laughs> uh, uh, can fire a, a, a wide range of uh, different kinds of bullets. Say so many things. <laughs> um, and yeah, so, so um, our hero, Jake Tiger Sharp, um, actually decides not to assassinate this person with the futuristic shotgun but still keeps it and moves to the uh the middle of the woods to the middle of nowhere um where uh, illegal hunting is is uh, quite widespread and he makes friends with a young deer a fawn <laughs> um who he brings into his house <laughs> and you know things escalate and it becomes uh, a kind of revenge narrative for one reason and then something else happens and it becomes a revenge narrative for another reason and it is fucking insane and wall to wall bonkers wall to wall bonkers one of the most fun third acts uh in recent memory um and it is available on blu-ray um 88 films have put it out and uh there's a, a couple of extras on there not not a wide range but um it's still worth buying for the film because it is crazy i've not seen the blu-ray of it is it is it crisp it is crisp, actually. Yeah, oh, no, it's... Um, I'm going to be resisting Blast Fighter. Oh, it's so years. good. It's so good. And um, what have you got next, Dan? So, uh, another... No, it's not in any way similar. Um, so, 1926 uh, silent Japanese uh, thriller <laughs> uh, called A Page of Madness. It's, as far as I know, the first instance of a... Uh, trying to undo a wrongful committing... It's about a guy who gets a job at an asylum to uh, to try and get his wife back after she's committed. But it's it's not very long. But it's uh, but it's really really beautifully shot. It's it was incredibly forward, uh, like ahead of its time, cinemat- cinematographically. It's absolutely absolutely beautiful. It's sort of very avant garde in its in its directing style. Um, I mean, that's kind of all I'm. That's, I don't really want to say much more about the plot. Mm-hmm. But it's yeah, it's. It's not going to be for everyone. It is. It's a silent film. It was uh, considered lost until the seventies when uh, it turned up and uh, had a score put to it. So the American disc has a 
has a, a piece of music to it, which is very, very good. Very, very um, efficient. And it's, yeah, it's really, really fantastic. Oh, amazing. You, yeah. It's right up your streets. Oh, right. I will have to watch this. Um, yeah, it sounds great. Um, now, my next recommendation is a slightly odd one. Um, it's not something that I watched in the past couple of weeks. It's something I watched absolutely ages ago. Um, the film I'm talking about, which I can now finally talk about, is Mandy, um, the, the Nicolas Cage bonkers a um, which is from the director of Beyond the Black Rainbow, uh, Panos Cosmatos. Um, have you seen Beyond the Black Rainbow? I've seen Beyond the Black Rainbow, I haven't seen Mandy. Yeah, so um, i not actually, as we record this, it will have screened in Cannes, which is why I'm allowed to talk about it now. But um, And it had screened at other places um, along the way, but um, I'm allowed to talk about it now, it's screened at Cannes. And if you liked Beyond the Black Rainbow, if you like Nicolas Cage, even if you didn't like Beyond the Black Rainbow, because... Um, it kind of takes the best elements of that film, which I really, really like. I love Beyond Black Rainbow, but um, it turns it into a more kind of coherent structure. It's still absolutely nuts. It's absolutely weird. Um, Nicolas Cage is kind of... If you've ever wanted to see Nick Cage do his kind of peak crazy Cage whilst retaining the superb acting he does in films like Leaving Las Vegas this is the film for you he manages for the first time for me I think balance that line between nice. that absolute he, he just incorporates it all makes it really work um, he plays a character uh, called Red who um, basically is set in 1983 and he lives in the middle of nowhere um, with his true love and uh, something happens to her that causes him to go on a mission of revenge. Um, and it involves like a weird, crazy cult. It involves weird demon bikers. Um, very psychedelic, beautifully shot, beautifully graded. The music's really fun. Um, yeah, I'm not going to say anything more about it really um, because it's still... Even as I record this, I still don't think it will have a release date yet. I think it's still being worked out in the UK. Um, I've made some recommendations myself in terms of how I think that it should be distributed. Whether they listen to that or not, I don't know. But um, <laughs> I think they mainly just wanted my feedback for marketing purposes. But I absolutely adored it. it kind of reminded me a little bit of um, Rob Zombie. Um, okay. uh, it kind of has that tone. Um, but I haven't felt this way about a film since Inland Empire in that I came stumbling out of it afterwards feeling like I was on drugs um, and feeling like I'd kind of transcended in quite a weird way and feeling kind of disconnected from reality and the people around me. It's one of those films, um, one of those very rare films. So um, I'll, I'm sure I'll talk about it again when it's time for it to actually come out and maybe I'll, you know, do some interviews for extra features. But uh, until then, I recommend keeping an eye out for Mandy. Nice. Dan, extra features. Extra features. Extra features. Extra features. I'm going to hand over to Dan. Right. So, uh, very exciting. We've got some sort of themed extra features today, or a themed extra feature in my time in effects, I have uh, crossed paths a couple of times with an American effects artist who uh, now lives over in the UK, over here, who used to assist Gabe Bartalos uh, and actually worked on Frankenhooker and Brain Damage. Uh, in fact, he is in Brain Damage. He plays the waiter who brings the uh, oh, the, the brains the brains to the Fantastic. table. So when we decided that we were going to talk about Frankenhooker, I gave him a, a shout out. Uh, and asked if he'd like to come in and have a chat with me about his experience working with Frank and with Gabe. Uh, and he said, yeah, absolutely, he'll do that. So, um, without further ado, uh, let's cut to this, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. And we're going. This is Dan Martin here with Dan Fry. We're going to be talking about Frankenhooker for the extras on the Frankenhooker episode. So we'll get straight in. I guess, do you want to introduce yourself and we'll go straight in? Yeah, uh, my name's Dan Fry, uh, originally from the States. So uh, many, many years ago, worked with Frank Kennenlauder on Brain Damage in 86. That was the first one. And then Frankenhooker and Basket Case 2 
which were basically filmed back to back in 1990. So yeah, that's amazing. And so you were, were you working for Gabe Batalas? No, sometimes? funnily enough, I was a makeup artist. I did a lot more constraint makeup around that time. So I was key uh, makeup artist on Brain Damage, and uh, there was a little bit of overlap with the um, the effects. So I met Gabe first on Brain Damage, and uh, there's a little bit of kind of overlap. And then Frankenhooker, uh, basically I had kind of been to LA and came back and basically I was living in LA and then I came back to work on um, Frankenhooker and Basket Case 2, but I'd known Gabe by that point. And he said, oh, do you want to do, I think I did two weeks in the workshop just before filming started, um, just because I did a bit of mold making and then did key makeup again for those two films. So That's uh, awesome. Yeah, I never did a hair. There's a hair, hair woman, but um, but yeah, I did more constraint makeup, which basically meant I was there for every every day of filming. Yeah, that's amazing. And how, so, how did you meet Frank? Well, funnily enough, it was when I was in New York. I worked one of my first movies was a movie called Slime City, really sort of low budget thing, uh, directed by a guy called Greg Lamberson. Um, and that was um, almost kind of no budget, but he basically knew Frank from a video shop in Times Square and kind of um, was a fan of his and Frank was saying oh yeah I'm going to do this film I'm going to do this film uh, you know telling him and basically after this movie Slime City ended you know and I was doing key makeup for that he said oh I'm going to work on this Frank Kennelodden film and uh, you know maybe should I mention your name to do makeup and I went yeah all right and by that point I had already kind of known about Frank from Basket Case obviously so I he was like a kind of cult director you know like Larry Cohen or you know, even even John Landis at that point you know all these kind of cult film directors and I was like woohoo you know sounds fantastic and didn't know anything about the the script but uh sounded cool so yeah. uh how far in advance would you have got the script for Frankenhooker uh Frankenhooker I think maybe about a month yeah I mean about a month and uh read that um and then f- funnily enough we we did some makeup tests. So I think there was, Gabe always basically said what from the neck up was my domain. And he was making um, like, I think an arm piece, um, like an arm prosthetic and a few little kind of stitches. Uh, basically, I think there's a stitch on, you know, stitch piece on her wrists and uh, on her back. Um, and she looks like she has a black, <laughs> a black arm, you know, like a, a black person's arm, um, a forearm. And uh, and basically, um, Frank was is really quite particular. So he said, I want purple. I want purple to be a kind of running theme, you know. So basically, her, I want. I don't care how you do it, but the make her lips look purple, her eyes look purple, or hair. And we found a, me and the hair woman found a wig that was purple. Uh, quite difficult I think she dyed it a bit um, and um, and did like a fashion makeup just a kind of very sort of stylized fashion makeup but that was yeah Gabe just saying yeah what do I do with you what do you like? and she, so she's obviously a patchwork of different skin tones with yeah. her, her black left mid forearm yeah, and, yeah. and so on she's very pale from the neck up was that uh, was, was there a yeah, conscious aspect of that yeah no he wanted it to be very sort of traditional horror film kind of thing. He wanted it to look pretty, you know, kind of sexy and pretty and that sort of thing, but he also wanted it um, her to be white. And funnily enough, in the end, uh, this is before, like, Skin Illustrator and, you know, I didn't even use, like, aqua colour or anything. It basically was clown white, you know, and basically clown white just kind of thinned out, still, you know, still almost wasn't white white, but enough, you know, so... Um, so yeah, I went through quite a lot of clown white <laughs> on that, you know, and then she has all this very stylized um, eyeshadow and, and that sort of thing, you know. And with the uh, when you had the big crowds of extras, obviously yeah. there are some uh, both the brothel scene and then the club scene towards the end and that kind of thing. Um, did you have a lot of assistance, or were Not you pretty really. much lone man? No, it? no. I mean, I would did that typical kind of low budget thing of someone stepping in front of us and we went, yeah, that's good, you know, and, <laughs> and, and you know, kind of powdering them on the day and that sort of thing. So no, I don't remember between me and and uh is a woman called rose chatterton who's in new york uh, she's actually quite big in uh IATSE in new york funnily enough uh, in the union in new york but she was my kind of hair woman and um 
Uh, yeah, I don't remember there being many assistants. Maybe one for a crowd scene, but not really. You know. What was the what was the biggest like struggle that you had on set with it? It was basically they filmed in uh, a kind of big kind of pier building, basically almost like a kind of warehouse. And it was owned by the city, so there was lots and lots of rooms. So they basically built the sets, they had a production office, they had workshops all in one building. Um, and everything just linked by sort of hallways and that sort of thing. So Gabe had a workshop, there was a makeup room, you know, with mirrors and all that stuff. But it was just the heat, basically. It was kind of summer in New York um, inside, and this is like with proper, you know, film lighting, you know, in 1990. Um, it was just absolutely boiling, and especially Frankenhooker. It was this little kind of room, and I think there's seven of the the, the hookers in it, you know. Um, and thankfully, they're not wearing much, you know, for them. But um, it was just absolutely boiling hot, so I would just be, you know, pouring with sweat, trying to keep them sort of powdered and, you know, not looking too uh, uh, too uh, haggard, really. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh it, i think maybe some of the uh some of the sweatiness lends itself to the yeah there's a point where i think there's a there's a sort of a crack den scene uh which funnily enough i'm in you know uh i said to frank oh can i be in the in the film you know and i'm in brain damage as well but he he it was a kind of union film like a sag you know screen actors guild uh, film and it was a little bit you know, dodgy, a little bit uh, kind of suspicious, really, to get a crew member in. But he went, just get in there. So I'm in the in the crack den at the back, you know. But um, we just basically let everyone sweat and look tired and haggard, and just so it's all real by proxy. <laughs> yeah, they all look terrible. Yeah. Um, and so, how long did you have between that and Basket Case Two? Hardly any time at all. I think probably, funnily enough, I kind of remember this because we had a rap party on the last night and the next day we had a read through and basically everyone was all around this table really and basically all the heads of department were hung over and there was a big bottle of water in the middle of the table and everyone just looked absolutely shattered um and just we read through the whole script you know wow. um, from beginning to end the next day in the morning so um so yeah pretty much i think there was maybe two weeks I mean, um, I think they did a thing that, you know, most films do these days, which is basically film on location, and then all the sets were being built while that was happening, and then we came back to the studio, for lack of a better word, and, uh, and, and filmed on the, on the sets. And we, was your, were your budgets for the two films divided, or were you given mm. a sort of lump sum and told to uh, figure it out? I don't remember. I think it kind of was... I think it was a kind of lump sum and then I kind of added a bit more and I think there wasn't much... I mean, in some ways, Basket Case 2, there were more uh, makeups in general. So, uh, I mean, I basically, if Gabe had needed a hand doing stuff, I kind of jumped in and, and, um, and that sort of thing. I don't even remember the budget. I think... In the in the beginning, we had sort of spillover makeup. You know, basically, we had stuff left over um, after the first film, which was, you know, pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Were there any particular gags from Frankenhooker that you remember working on in Gabe's shop? Yeah, no, I was kind of doing... I mean, basically, we were doing moulding, and I do remember... Uh, I mean, I was uh, moulding a lot of the bodies, uh, the sort of breakaway bodies that exploded. I think about two weeks... Before I showed up, they did all the life casting of the women. So it was seven women cast nude. Uh, and these were all like young guys between sort of 20 and 25. So they were all uh, still talking about, <laughs> you know, these days when they were, oh, my God, you know, like basically life casting penthouse models and, and uh, actresses and all this sort of stuff. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it, basically everything was really fat. I mean, that was the thing. Everything was done super, super fast. Um, I think the one sort of fun thing that I did was basically to repeat a makeup that you see in the first movie in Basket Case. So basically he's hanging onto the sign at the end of Basket Case and he goes, Whoa, and he kind of falls off the sign and he, he dies and Belial dies. 
and basically he lives, you know, you see him at the beginning, he's kind of survived and he's going off to hospital. So basically I had to reference the first movie to kind of see, you know, and I think they just threw blood all over him, but he has like a sort of fat lip and a, and a black eye and it gets a little bit better when he goes to, um, is it um, Auntie Ruth or Granny Ruth, uh, the woman that takes him in, basically gets better. Uh, so it was a little bit kind of graduating into sort of Looking better, at your better story health, yeah, days. yeah, yeah. So I mean, that was kind of fun to um, to have, just kind of be part of the kind of link, and also um, I remember putting um, bruises on Belial. <laughs> you know, I think Frank said, "Oh, just put some bruises on him and you know some blood on him." So you know, I've got a picture of me, you know, with him on the in the makeup chair, you know, doing <laughs> that sort of stuff. So yeah. Uh, you said if uh, if Gabe needed you on both films, was that on Frank and yeah, as well? Yeah, I mean, more so on uh, Basket Case. Basically, Frank he was stupendously ambitious. You know, his, uh, I think he had a producer, uh, this fellow Edgar Ivans, who basically was there to kind of cut him down to size and say, Frank, you can't do this, you can't do that. But it, like, his imagination was you know, super ambitious. And I think he wanted as many of these freaks as possible so Gabe who's like a, a you know very very fast sculptor would sculpt things in a day and then they would kind of get molded and, and done in like polyfoam even or foam latex and some of them were just sort of background mass some of them were makeups but um I remember we took some spare pieces some odds and sods pieces and I made a, you know, a freak from that, you know, and said, oh, just put him in the background, put some hair on him, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, they're kind of trying to pack out the, the numbers. And then there were like principal freaks, which you see in the film, and some even have animatronic uh, masks and, and, and makeups and all kinds of things. Um, but it's one of the first jobs of Joel Harlow as well, who, who went on to, you know, he's Johnny Depp's makeup artist and, and, and uh, has been... I think he got an Oscar for Star Trek and another uh, nominated for uh, Moon Ranger, I think. You know. So, yeah, it, it was you know, one of his first films. So he was, um, you know, we were all just a bit, you know, dazed by the whole speed of things. And Frank talks about being inside the freezer container at the end, to, at the end of Frankenhooker. Oh, yeah. To, to drag in our hero. It's not a hero, Jeff- is it? Jeffrey. Drag in, yeah, drag in uh, Jeffrey. What was the craziest not-your-job thing you were asked to do on set? Uh, you roped into a lot of stuff other than playing a crackhead. Uh, yeah, no, I don't... Thankfully, I avoided a lot of that stuff. I think there were some people that, like, there's a bit at the end with all the kind of mutant uh, bits, you know, the sort of the experiment's gone wrong and they kind of spill out you know, all these kind of breasts with arms and heads and eyes and all that sort of stuff and there were people with arms you know through the set and I just remember um you know that typical thing like three hours later the people had like their arms had gone dead and you know that they, they uh, were in absolute agony so I think I kind of avoided all that kind of thing um yeah no uh I uh I didn't do anything too crazy <laughs> thankfully no um, but you look back on it fondly? It's all... Yeah, yeah. No, I think it was lovely. Basically, I had kind of been out in LA. Um, I'd worked on a few things, you know, uh, Ghostbusters 2 and Nightmare on Elm Street and done a few things. But And, you know, I think um, at that point I found it quite sort of competitive and difficult. And I think it was lovely to kind of go back and work with a crew that I, or, you know, basically... Um, Gabe and Frank and Edgar um, and a lot of the cast he used again so um, so it was lovely to kind of come back to New York where I'm from uh, and and work on a film you know and at that point that was kind of the biggest I mean on being on set was the biggest film that I worked on and being out in LA and because of the unions I didn't really go to set you know I worked in the workshop but things were you know uh difficult for me to actually work on on set so um so yeah no in a way um and I wasn't making much money but um I think I moved back home I moved in with my parents um and lived with my parents back you know again uh so I was saving money so it was it was quite a good time really you know nice 
I think that's kind of everything. Okay, I've run yeah. out of questions. I've, I've got a, a sort of a tentative additional question that we might not use. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah. It kind of depends on what your answer is, I guess. Frank talks about quite a tense atmosphere on set because of his relationship on Frankenhooker, because of his relationship with the DOP, we kind of at each other's throats. Weirdly enough, I wasn't aware of all that. Basically, this DP came in and kind of, I don't think, spoke the same language as Frank. And, and um, Frank is the sort of person where if no one wants to pick up the camera, he'll pick up the camera. You know, he will do everything. He's kind of like a little mini James Cameron, really. You know, he'll he'll do everything he has to to get the thing done. So this guy had basically done uh, camera work for other things. He, he'd been a cameraman, but not really a DP. So he was... Um, he, yeah, I just think they were on different wavelengths. Uh, but I didn't see it at all. That's the funny thing. I, I was just zipping along you know I didn't see any of that tenseness really so and I think it was just creative stuff which I wasn't kind of aware I think things some things were shot over uh which probably at the time I could have seen as a uh, yeah evidence of things going a bit funny but um yeah cool all right well thank you very very that's much okay. thank you so yeah. much for coming that's, and talking to us that was great, Thank I assume. You. Yeah, I think he was good. Yeah, he's a nice, nice chap. I'm looking forward to, to interviewing him and then having interviewed it's, it's him. It's done. It's done. Yeah, we just listened to it. in the future past. It was great. In the future past. Great. All right, well, that's it for us. Thank you so much for listening. And we promise we'll be more professional next time. Fingers crossed behind our backs. <laughs> oh, and <laughs> next time oh, yeah. we'll be doing Hellraiser 2. Hellraiser 2. All right, bye-bye. Bye.